a lot of people are creating for critics by walking on eggshells with their content. If you're creating for the critic, you're not creating for the person who's actually listening to your content. Hey everyone, we have a very special episode for you here today. Actually, it's very unique because rarely do we have another couple on this episode. And today we have not just a couple, but a couple who host a podcast together and much, much more. We have Michael and Lauren Bostick. Uh, they're founders of Dear Media. They host uh, His and Hers Skinny Confidential podcast. They are content creators, community builders, and much more. And we had a blast. We talked about what it means to really understand your audience. And Lauren and Michael had a lot of great advice for everybody. We talked about what a fantastic podcast episode could sound like and what a great conversation is. We really got into that. Uh, we talked about how to be authentic to your community, uh, cancel culture, doing a show as a couple, and a lot more. We had a blast doing this episode, and hopefully you do too. Lauren, Michael, I want to kind of get to the hard question right off the bat. Best and worst parts about hosting a podcast with your significant other? I'll tell you one thing. I've learned from experience that I have to answer second on this one because I don't want to step into a pothole here. Lauren, go ahead. The best part is being able to do all these late nights and early mornings with my partner. I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way. You know, we're on sometimes we're on a flight at 430 in the morning. We got stuck on the runway for like six hours. And I looked at him and I said, I would not want to do this with anyone but you. So that's the best part is being able to share the experience and as you guys know, we're both uplifting each other. There's not like a sort of like a jealous or tug of war situation happening. Um, and then the worst part is Michael can interrupt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what are you talking about, Lauren? Be quiet. Lauren, be quiet. No, I'm just kidding. We're working on it. No, I think, um, you know, it's, it goes back to the roots of why we started this thing. Lauren and I were both respectively in our own kind of career lanes and paths and doing, you know, separate companies, separate jobs. And we really wanted something that we could do together to spend more. I mean, Lauren and I love each other. We've known each other since we we're 12 years old and we wanted something to do together. We said, what, you know, better way than to meet interesting people, get to talk to them almost like you're going to intimate dinners all the time with all these different walks of life. So we started the hard part. And I'm sure as you guys have figured out working together as a couple is you got to really navigate that. I think if you can figure out how to work together as a couple, yeah. the marriage stuff is the becomes easy. The easy. parenting's easy. The marriage is easy. <laughs> working together as a couple. That is the, that is the hard part. Uh, oh, boy, I, 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 I saw both of you, you know, before we started recording, uh, Lauren, I saw you being like, I think I want that chair. And you guys immediately swapped. <laughs> and then we like got disconnected, came back on, and then you'd swapped again. And I was like, wow, these two know how they like work together. They, they're just like on it. Yeah. The wife always should pick the chair that she wants to sit in. And she should always pick what side of her face is better looking. Who cares what the guy looks like? No one cares. We've had some discussions about lighting in this room. Uh, by the way, I definitely interrupt more uh, for sure. The other thing we have is Arthi kicks me under the table if she thinks like I'm going on too long she's like just and I, I get kicked and I'm like okay okay I get the message and sometimes she accidentally kicks me and I'm like I don't get it like you, you gotta make it more deliberate I gotta know what's going on here I mean he's got really long legs this guy's six six and I'm like five feet nothing and so like he's got it's just legs under the table he's like an octopus and so I'm just like the moment I like step my leg out it's like a kick and I'm like okay I'm sorry but how do I tell you that that was not intentional yeah. so we're still working on yeah. that if you want some, give him uh, a pinch a kick, a stab. <laughs> you could get real creative with it. Yeah. All different kinds of things under that table. If you want some advice from some people who have been podcasting together for a while, what I do is I set up all the studio setups with, with, with put leg distance out there so that I No, I can't what be he reached. does is he says, why are you kicking me on the interview? Oh, so, <laughs> I, I should try that. I should try that. Why <laughs> is there a knife in my leg? <laughs> um, you know, Lauren Michael, you know, I was telling you this before we went on and it's, you know, you know, I've followed your journey for a while. So you folks just inspiring both professionally, but then I've gotten to know a little bit about your personal lives and it's just so amazing. But for our audience who may not be as familiar with you, uh, and maybe Lauren, I'll start with you because I think some of the story obviously starts with the Skinny Confidential. Like, talk to us about the origin story about Lauren and Michael's Skinny Confidential and how Dear Media came to be. We met when we were 12. We were childhood sweethearts, like very young, 12, 13, 14, 15. We broke up. 
We went to the same high school and we always had like an energetic connection. Like I remember even telling him things that I wasn't telling my boyfriend at the time in high school. We would always, we had a connection still. And he always gave off a vibe of I'm here when you're ready. I can't explain that. And, but it was, it was just a vibe of he was here when I was ready. Finally, when I was ready at 21, it uh, took a decade. We, yeah, it took a decade. We got back <laughs> together and um, we've just had a very synergistic partnership. I launched the Skinny Confidential when I was attending San Diego State. I was doing sort of like the rinse and repeat thing that you're supposed to do, which is, you know, you go to high school, you graduate, you go to college. And th- there was something, and, and this isn't surprising now, but that just felt uh, formulaic to me. It, it was boring. It wasn't interesting. And looking back, I realized that it, it, it was that entrepreneur seed in me that needed to to be watered. So I launched the blog because I couldn't afford a sorority. It's very expensive at the time. It's like $1,000 or something for a semester. And I wanted to create a sorority online and have a resource for free. And the word skinny has nothing to do with body. I always say this. It has to do with getting the juice, getting the skinny, getting getting like the secrets. And I think what differentiated it at the time was there was not really any blogs online that weren't about other people. And what I mean by that is this. A lot of the bloggers out there were like, this is the nail polish I'm wearing. This is the clothes I'm wearing. But they weren't like bringing other people on the platforms and and building them up. So I was like, I want to know what the everyday girl nail polish color is. But I also want to know what the supermodel is. And I want to know what this actress is eating. So I sort of like gathered everyone's tips and tricks and put them on this resource. And that was 14 years ago. Yeah. And, and again, like during this, this time, Lauren and I had obviously remained close. And as soon as we got back together at 21, like we were all in, we haven't been separated since. Um, but I was, you know, more of a behind the scenes operator. You know, I started in real estate as I, I know you've heard. And then I got into manufacturing with the business of my father. I had an agency at one point helping brands scale in early days of D to C. So I kind of was like in this digital ecosphere. Like this is all, and keep in mind when she started before the term influencer even exists, back when people say, how do you make money with a blog? Are you nuts? Podcasting wasn't even on the radar. Um, and I just saw her starting to build this kind of community and audience online. And I thought, hey, there's like, there's an interesting business opportunity to kind of help scale this, but in, while intentionally making sure that it was a brand and a community that could continue to scale and be more than just, you know, a single creator channel about themselves. It was more about building a real community, audience-based, customer base. I just want to say, by the way, you folks are amazing founders, amazing parents. Uh, Michael, I've gotten to know you a little bit. and But yesterday I was preparing for this and I was listening to uh, a bunch of uh, your old interviews. And Lauren, I have to say, We've had many, many founders on the show. I don't think I've heard anyone who absolutely knows who their customer is, or in your case, your audience is, as maybe as well as you do. So maybe you could actually talk a little bit about that, because I think, one, who is the uh, who is your target audience? How would you describe her, what she likes, what she's into? And maybe how much you focus on that over the years? Because when you described it, I was like, I was just totally blown away. That's very nice. Thank you. I launched the Skinny Confidential with the intention to create a brand from the beginning. I knew I wanted to create a brand and I wanted to leverage the foundation of the blog to build other things. So you look at it like kind of like an octopus, the Skinny Confidential's in the middle and off that you can sort of build a lot of things. And in that, I I knew that you intuitively that you had to be speaking to someone. And so what I did is I actually like wrote out and I still have this of what her name is, uh, what nail polish color she's wearing, what she's listening to, what she likes. Um, And really what it is, is it's a woman who cares about the way she looks and presents herself in hair and nails and and spray tan. But at the same time, she also wants to better herself. She she loves working. She has entrepreneurial aspects about her. So I just really, really refined who that is. And it's it's evolved, obviously, over the years. I've become a mother and that that woman has grown with me. And I also think, and, and this is sort of a, a tip for everyone who, who has a customer, is you have to look at the person that you're speaking to as an influencer. 
And that's a that's a very it's not talked about enough. The person that I'm talking to is an influencer. And what I mean by that, if I sell her an ice roller or I do a podcast that she loves, she's going to go to happy hour with 10 of her friends and she is going to rave about the product or she is going to say if she liked the podcast or she didn't. So I've tried to treat every single person who's consumed my content as an influencer instead of like me as the leader. And I have all these followers. It's I don't see a lot of longevity with that. The idea has always been if you continue to provide people value or some kind of entertainment or something that they can take to enhance their own life, that they're going to sing praise from the mountaintops and build your brand for you. Now, there's a self-serving aspect to that where you obviously want to build the platform that you're building, but really the intention is first, like, can we provide out, can we provide outsized value to that person that's either listening or watching or viewing to the point where like they feel compelled to scream from the mountaintops, like, Hey, this is a great property or this is a great show, or this product is a great uh, product. I I think so many people in the creator space, they forget that. And it becomes a little too self-serving. We, we don't have marketing tactics here. We don't have marketing tactics at Dear Media. The whole thing is like provide outsized value to that consumer base or listener or viewer to the point where like they are your marketing. And we all know word of mouth marketing is still the most powerful form of marketing. How do you get validation from your audience, especially when you do it in like podcast form? And Lauren, I know you have like this strong community. How do you know when things are working? Uh, and how do you know when they're not? And I ask this because uh, when things are working, sometimes um you get the same feedback from the audience and you're like, well, did that really resonate? I don't really know. Or you tend to have this like vocal minority of people who tend to be critical, but you can't really take their feedback and just extrapolate and change everything because you're just upset about this like one person who said something like negative. So how do you deal with encouragement and criticism from your community? And how do you just get feedback overall? I look at it like a painting. You can't be too close to a painting, but you can't be too far away because if you're too close, then you're too in it. And if you're too far away, you can't see it. So there's a a very specific finesse, I think. And this is something that I've like learned. It's not I'm not perfect at it by any means, but it's like, are you engaging are but not engaging to the point where it's slimy? And you, you all you know what I'm talking about, where it feels like it's like yeah it's just it, it doesn't feel right yeah um also i'm listening i'm constantly listening i think instead of just talking at the community i'm i'm listening in my dms every single product that i've built with the skinny confidential product line is from listening and hearing what people want and what they think could be done better and what they like and what they don't like i had a facebook group of of 60,000 women and i was able to really tap in and ask them questions feedback is so important as far as critics i've realized we have critics <laughs> i realized with the critics you cannot create for critics right and what i mean by that is a lot of people are creating for critics by walking on eggshells with their content it, it, they're being too uh, pc they're being t- it's 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 almost um patronizing and it's I think that you if you're creating for the critic, you're not creating for the person who's actually listening to your content. My advice with the critics is you just got to let it fly over your head. I mean, it, it's it's you're going to sometimes it's constructive and I'll take the constructive criticism. But if someone doesn't like the sound of my voice, I can't change the sound of my voice. This is this is how I sound. We, we've sat down since the beginning and been very intentional about. So, I mean, you guys have done this for a while now. We've done it for a long time, you know, seven years or so. And we just knew inherently that if we weren't ourselves all the time saying what we want to say, how we want to say it, things we're interested in, talk to, like, if we didn't do that and stick to those guns, that there'd be no way to continue to scale this and continue to do it after all these years. So we knew by doing that, that we were going to lose a lot of people. And some people were just going to be like, this is not for me. They are not for us. Um, but at the same time, we were going to also find the people that love what we were doing. And so I think, again, not only doing it ourselves, but now working with so many other talents, I think it's a huge mistake when creators try to grab everyone and appease everyone and make everyone happy. I think you end up reaching no one when you try to reach everybody. And for us, we're like, okay, we are speaking to this very specific community. They're here for us. They like, they resonate. They may not love everything, but they at least know 100% of the time we're being authentically ourselves. And I know that word gets thrown around Mm -hmm. all the time now, but it really is true. Like, I, 
I think it's a huge mistake when you try to appease the masses or try to, you know, enter some kind of political speech. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work and people know it's not authentic. And so for us, um, we were just talking on a podcast earlier. We like to kind of mess with the audience to the sense sometimes where you may think we would never have a certain kind of guest on and then we have them on. And I, I like that. I like that people can't kind of put us in a box and say, like, you're only this one thing all the time. I so resonate with that because we, we are, for example, I think even just having both of you, I think is so fascinating because we are not from the technology world classically. But what we have found is that when we have kind of gone outside our lane um, and it's either somebody from entertainment or sports and there is chemistry and we are having fun and they're having fun, the audience connects to that. On the other hand, I think, Lauren, to your point, when we're trying to artificially construct something because we think that's what they want, I think people can also sense that too. And it just never really works. Those are our worst episodes. I, I'd like to agree with him, but Shriram's also one of those people who will see that one bad comment and then will like agonize about it for like days. He'd be like, oh, no, no, really? no, tell him to text me. <laughs> no, 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 no. You can't, you can't spiral for days. You can't fixate on it. He'd be like, Take really? it, please. If anything, I, my, Michael and I have different views on this. I say, don't even let it enter your head. Just keep creating, keep putting it out there. And, and if it becomes problematic and someone's being actually mean and malice, just block them. If it's constructive, take it. Don't fixate too much I, on it. I personally find more value in the critics than in the... I mean, because listen, someone that loves you is going to tell you they love you and encourage you. And and you almost can't trust that data all the time because they're fans and they are just going to... Michael loves a critique. But, but I That's why I, he married me. I like a critique when... <laughs> like if somebody says, Michael, you are interrupting too much or you're mansplaining or... you know, I, I look at that and I say, okay, there's always room to improve. There's always way to get you know better at creating content. But if somebody's mad because I hold a certain opinion or because I have a certain viewpoint, like I can't help them. They got to go with God on that. Um, it's it, it, like I'm not going to change my perspective or viewpoints based on what a segment of the Internet, you know, feels or thinks. Right. Like I, I we're, we're all people running in this world and you come to your conclusions based on your upbringing, the, the education you have, the information you have, your social interactions, all these things. Um, and I think we're losing that a little bit in the world right now where it's like you have to think one way or the other. And, it you know. Um, I think that what I love about this medium is it creates nuance in conversation that needs to exist, right? It's not just all a Twitter post or an Instagram uh, picture. It's like there's there's nuance to every conversation. And um, we've learned over the years that there can be empathy for anyone's viewpoints if you just understand how they came to have them. Do you ever worry about cancel culture in the no. in the vein of thought? No, never. Has it like not occurred to you on like, oh my God, what would happen if... Somebody just took something out of context, cut out a clip, and it's just the worst thing. And, you know, everyone's just coming after you. Do you ever worry about, an, you know, anything of that sort, like an eventuality? Lauren may feel differently, but my perspective is this. I believe that we have the right intention, which is to serve and help people and provide content. Our intention is, we always tell people when they come on the show, it's never to get anyone. It's never to put anyone in a bad light. We're not gossiping. We're not trying to, we're not trying to harm anyone's life, Right. If if a viewpoint triggers you, or if I say something that's wild, fine. Um, so I don't worry about cancel culture because the I think the intention is in the right place. I also don't worry about cancel culture because I think we've created an envir environment where we're not at the mercy of third party platforms or brands, right? Like the reason I love this medium of podcasting is it lives on an RSS feed and you can put it on your website or Apple or Spotify, wherever you can get them. And we have control over it. Like the account, you, you know what I'm saying? Um, I think people that worry about this stuff, whether they're worried about a brand deal or an advertiser, like those are the ones, um, they've, they've put themselves in a situation where they're leveraged um, by a third party that has basically a position of authority to actually cancel them. Where for us, like, in a weird way, and I always joke around that we're uncancelable. It's like, I'm not going to cancel myself. My network that we've built is not going to cut our show. Um, and also, if the, the cancelable offense has to be something where you're actually going out and causing harm, not just because you're hurting someone's feelings online. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I think you're hitting on something very interesting, which is, uh, I don't think the internet rewards uh, people who just want to play all sides. Uh, I think if, you, if you're going to be out there, you need to have a strong point of view. And to be honest, there have been episodes when I've tried to just toe the line, um, hedge uh, every single direction. It doesn't resonate. People can kind of see through it as opposed to when you kind of really 
put yourself out on the ledge you they're going to be haters but people resonate with that and i think the internet rewards people who put themselves out on the ledge a hundred percent. And if you look at everyone that, you know, we all admire, you guys mentioned some incredible people that have been on your podcast. They're people that put themselves out there to criticism constantly. And I look at it like you're you're callousing your brain. Every time you put yourself out there, you get a callous. It gets easier and easier and easier. As far as it's canceling, how I try to look at it is like, and I talk about this a lot on our podcast is like, I have a cell phone battery of energy and I don't want to waste my energy on things that I can't control. And I can't control it if someone wants to cancel me. I can just control my reaction and I can control what comes out of my mouth and, and not hopefully not hurt people's feelings or like Michael said, cause harm. And it's, so it's very simple. If you're if you if you make a misstep on the Internet or say something that you shouldn't have said and you're actually sorry for it, you can own up to it and apologize if you're really sorry. My biggest problem was when people go on these apology tours for stuff they're not actually oh, sorry yeah. about. Oh, yeah. And also <laughs> also like has anyone really actually been really canceled off the Internet? I've never actually seen that. I know people who have been, quote unquote, canceled, but like then they they're back on the Internet. So I feel like that phrase is not even really accurate. Like name someone who's actually been canceled off the internet. Like goodbye. Maybe Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to like actually like cancel someone off the face of this this earth. I think the core of this is that we just inherently understand and have had from a very young age know that there's always going to be critics and there's always going to be people that dislike us or dislike our message. Um, And I think that goes for everybody on the internet. I think no matter how big or how small, like everybody's going to have critics. If you spend too much time focusing on that and not on the people who love you and not on yourself, then I think you could get into a really um, bad situation because you can't, you, you like Lauren said, you're a little too close to the painting. Then you're like, oh my God, I'm in this, the, the world hates me. It's like, no, zoom out a little bit. There's a lot of people that love, love you as well. Lauren, I want to, when I was listening to one of your podcasts the other day, uh, you said something which really blew me away. Uh, you were talking about how you spent I don't know whether you still do this, but you used to spend a bunch of time every morning going through every single DM and responding to every single person. I think you still do some version of that. And, you know, when I look at just your story, right, uh, from the blog to the Facebook group to, uh, to the podcast, you know, obviously network, uh, I see a lot of people in technology now, you know, being a content creator, right? Uh, they have a Discord server. Uh, they are doing a book tour. They're doing a podcast. I think we'll start soon seeing like podcast networks of tech people and folks from engineers. I am curious for some folks who are listening now, and they may be a Google engineer or Facebook engineer, and they are trying to build an audience, connect. Like, what would you tell somebody to who's just getting started? They have a Twitter following. They have an Instagram following, maybe a Substack following, maybe a podcast with a couple of hundred downloads. They're just getting started. Talk to us about like, okay, here's what you should absolutely do and what has worked for you. The number one thing if you're starting to create content in this moment is stop trying to go get more followers. Focus on the people in front of you, even if it's three people that you can serve. Like I said earlier, those three people will go tell 10 people each. This is a slow build, okay? This is like Chinese torture with the way this grows. This is, the way that I've grown is there's never been this big epiphany or this big following or this viral thing. To build something substantial with severe longevity, I think that you you have to do it in a way that's methodical, thoughtful, slow. And that starts by getting one follower, then two, then three. I would focus on what you have, not what you don't have. That is like my biggest one. Going back to to what you said, though, about uh, how you were struggling with, you know, oh, like, uh, I think that you're allowed to be multifaceted. Just because you love tech and you're into tech doesn't mean that you also can't tell a sex joke and have a really humorous, funny side and get drunk and eat chicken wings. Like you can have a lot of different layers to you. And I when think- When have you got drunk and eaten chicken wings? I'm just wings? making, yeah. I'm just, I just showed you a video of me dancing eating them. That's why that came to my my head. But I think I think that you guys should own that. Yes, you, you love tech and this is your world and you're immersed in it, but you also have other things going on. And to, for people to have to- just put you in the tech box. That's not fair. I think a theme of Lauren and I's life, and um, I was like 
notoriously bad student and just was constantly trying to get out. But I think the theme of Lauren and I's life is like, we never want to be in a box. I love the idea that one moment on the show, we could be talking about sex. I also love another moment where we can be talking to a scientist. We just had one on. I like that we can be talking to an extremely smart author that has way more credentials than either of us have. Um, I like the idea that at one moment I'm on this podcast as quote unquote, a talent on a show or a host of a show. And then I'll leave and go into a boardroom and present, you know, an executive discussion, right? I like, I like these things because life is multifaceted and I would hate to think like, Hey, Michael, you're only a media executive or you're only a podcast host or you're only into fitness. Like I think people like, that's how you stay interested in life is you have a well-rounded life that, that has multiple facets involved. Michael, you're talking about being a board member, being an executive. And what is interesting is you have taken, um, your podcast, but really made it into a platform. So uh, could you talk about what Dear Media is and what the platform is? Because I think it's such an interesting transition. And then I have some questions after that. Sure. I'll kind of give you like a quick rundown. What Lauren and I, when we started our podcast, again, it started as a labor of love side thing. We were both operating different business. And traditionally, I was an, an operator by trade. Um, but when we started the show, we realized like, hey, we need a little more support. As you guys know, putting a show out every single week, monetizing it, marketing it, booking guests, editing it, all this stuff is it's such a it's, there's so many pieces. So we joined a prominent podcast network at the time and quickly realized that that experience wasn't conducive for the brand that we were building. They were very singularly focused on just audio as a channel, stuck on CPM selling, very like think maybe like old radio world kind of trying to merge into this digital landscape that we all engage in. And at the time we had the blog, the social channels, the video channels, you know, all of the different things that, you know, we were doing. And there was no marriage between the audio channel to all the rest of the stuff. So we said, this is just not for us. We left that platform and started self-producing and kind of weaved the podcast in the entire Skinny Confidential brand. Uh, and the show started to have a lot of success, not only from an audience growth standpoint, but from a financial standpoint. And I thought, huh, there is an opportunity here to help other creators that are in the same position that we're in to do this at scale, because if we're having this problem, um, you know, other people must be having it as well. I also, at the time, looked at all the top charts, think, you know, 2017, 18, and it was very male dominated. Many of the people that I really admire to this day, the Gary V's, the Joe Rogan's, the Rich Rolls, the Tim Ferriss's, the people that I still admire. I said, this is kind of strange because there are so many women in this space. There's such a large female audience. There are so many brands that are female focused. Why is there not an at scale place where women can come and know that their content is being positioned in the right place, where brands can go and do buys at scale towards these audiences and where audiences could come and say, hey, I need to resonate with other content, whether that's parenting or comedy or lifestyle or whatever in one place. And so we created Dear Media. We basically took the learnings that we had learned over the last two or three years in the podcast and started basically representing other people like ourselves in the space. So um, to date, we have about 70 shows under this umbrella outside of our show. Um, we're in live events. We're in obviously audio, you know, video. We're in commerce. We invest in commerce brands and stand them up. Um, you know, we, you know, basically our full service turnkey. If you have a show and you want to come here and just like has simple processes sitting down in a chair and talking on a mic and know that everything else is taken care of white glove. We do all of that. Okay, this is the fun part because I was waiting to uh, ask you this, Michael and Lauren, which is, so let's say somebody comes in, they either, maybe they have a small podcast or maybe they have a following or they want to create one. What do you tell them? How do you help them, you know, find audience, find audience content fit and then grow the podcast. Like just walk me through what that looks like. I want somebody that's coming with a perspective that has a unique angle that that has something different that, you know, other people don't bring to the table in this space. When Lauren and I started, there was maybe half a million podcasts. I think the last stat I heard, heard is there's like five or six million now. So it's gotten more competitive. Um, but if we can identify that and say, okay, we can really help grow this. As a network now, we have so many properties in such a vast reach across all the channels that immediately that new property gets visibility across our entire portfolio. We've obviously learned a lot from a marketing standpoint. You know, there's cross promotion across all these shows. So I think we talk to a lot of people who want to grow a podcast, um, but either what we find is, what I find myself telling them, and sometimes I want to tell them something, but I'm not able to, is they either don't have a unique perspective or they don't have the right motivations coming into it in the first place. For example, they have a community somewhere else and they're like, I just want to have a podcast because everyone has a podcast and I want to go, no, no, no. You need to have something which people want to listen to you for and you actually want to have to do it. Um, 
I'm sure you talk to a lot of celebrities, people who have existing audiences elsewhere. Um, what do you find yourself wishing you could tell or them? The other part is uh, we just think they won't stick with it. Yeah. You know, this is like a really long journey, right? Like, and so everyone's so enamored by it and they'd be like, oh, they're doing, he's doing it, she's doing it, I got to do it. And they would get in like three episodes and they're like, oh, I, I just can't, this is a lot of work. And they realize that the the seven eighth of the iceberg, the one eighth of the iceberg that's on the top of the water is like amazing. It looks so shiny. The one below is like, oh my God, I didn't realize how much work I have to put into this. What do you tell people? We've gone through an interesting period of time, I think, Lauren and I here is in the beginning, people would say, what the hell is a podcast and what are you doing? We, I remember we used to create videos on our uh, on the, our phone to show people where the podcast app was. So back then we were crazy. Then we went through a period of time, as you guys know, where there was a lot of great headlines, a lot of acquisitions, a lot of big money announcements for creators and companies in the podcast space. And that was the moment when every kind of celebrity and personality online said, hey, I'm going to do a podcast, right? Because they the money was there. Um, the way that we've mitigated against those is I really like, I mentioned earlier, I don't create a lot of social content because I know as a creator, I'm not going to be the best at doing that. I love podcasting. I would do it for free, right? I just happen to build a business off it. And so if you're not coming to the table with the the perspective that you really love and want to do this for a consistent period of time, it's typically a pass. And at Dear Media, we've passed on a lot of that kind of, I won't name names, but celebrity talent that's like, hey, I just want to add another thing because I hear there's money there. I'm looking for the person that's going to say, I've got a very unique perspective and I'll do this for as long as it takes to make it successful, right? I've seen so many shows, they go and they, right before they get to that year part, they're like, hey, I'm not making any money, I'm out. And then the shows that stick around and they get to that second year, it's almost like exponential growth and they're huge success stories. And so it's one of those things, as you guys know, any content creators and you know, guys like even as big as Mr. Beast have talked about this, it's a slow, slow trickle putting in those hours, those times. I mean, Lauren and I are about 600 of these things now. We've never missed a week in seven years, whether it's been up or down or money's been there or not. And now, you know, it's successful, but the intention has to be in the right place to begin with. You have to really love in, to, to do it and you have to really be interested in the people you're talking to. That is an amazing stat that you have done, what, 600 and haven't missed an episode? That's amazing. Yeah, but be, again, because it's like Lauren and I sat down, the intention was from the beginning, regardless of the money, this is what we're doing. It's just like brushing your teeth. We do it every time, whether we're traveling, whether we need to batch, whether we have the kids. And it's just, it's like going to the gym. It's like, if you made, I, we made the commitment and it's like, that's what it is. And I think creators that fall into um, traps in this space or don't do well, it's like, they don't have that same kind of commitment. I don't, you don't need to do it 700 times every single week, but you need to, you need to have a commitment to stick with some consistency. And I think that's a, a, across every medium. Okay. I want to get to a diff slightly different variation of this because you folks obviously host a very successful podcast yourself, isn't hers. And I love listening to it because uh, it is so different from um, you know, some of the usual content I listen to. I get exposed to so many uh People that I then wind up hearing often in pop culture, for, and I hear, uh, you know, I hear it on your show first. What makes a good guest? What makes an awful guest? To me, a good guest is warm, self-deprecating, doesn't take themselves too seriously, but then also can transition into be vulnerable and raw, and and maybe even sometimes cry or be sad and show emotion. I also think. For my own listening, I like when people are detailed. I don't like a broad story. I like a, you know, one of my favorite episodes was is Molly's Game episode that we did. And it's all about the woman who was doing the underground poker in Hollywood with all the celebrities. And what I loved is the episode took us up. It took us down. It was sad. It was happy. It was funny. She was self-deprecating. She was, it was disarming. And it was, it hit a lot of different things. It's almost kind of like a movie is a good guest, right? It, it hits all the different emotions. A bad guest is someone who doesn't want to open up. And I want to say bad guest. What I mean by that is someone that maybe shouldn't be on a mic. That's just not the right platform for them. Or they come on and they're self-serving and guarded, or they're trying to just sell the, the audience. You can't something. sell. The, 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 if the audience wants to buy something, they'll come and seek you out at the end. There's someone that comes on that wants to sell, someone that's not open, someone that has gone through something that is clearly maybe traumatic, but they're very closed off. It's This platform is about intimacy in someone's ear. And if you can't be intimate, then it's not the right platform. I will say this, and maybe some of the agencies that we work with might not like it, but most of the time, most of the big celebrities that have come up in a very guarded fashion 
are the worst kind of guests because yes, you're a big name and you have a lot of notoriety, but if you're not going to open up and actually have a human connection and tell us what you really think and how you really feel, we what don't are care. We doing? Yeah, what I, don't, are we doing? I don't care about your skincare routine. I want to know who you are as a person. I don't. You, you I know, do care about your skincare routine, but I also <laughs> want to know who you are as a person. But you, you know, like, I, and I think like where where hosts again, and I, I'm basing this not only on our show where we have a lot of data, but I'll base it off the all of the data I see from Dear Media, which is a lot. It's not always the biggest names that translates. It's the people that are most open, most raw, have a message, really go out on a limb and provide that kind of value are not self-serving, are out there to try to actually enhance somebody else's life. And, you know, we just had a woman on the show. She has maybe 3,000 followers online. Not many. She had does not have a big platform. It was one of the most successful episodes. It was, a, it was an episode about a woman who was um, kidnapped and held for 93 days by Somali pirates. She was so raw. She was so real. It was such a compelling story. It was so emotional. Like, it doesn't always have to be the headline name. And, and listen, we have those kind of guests, but also we're not afraid to just tap into someone like, hmm, that one, that person has a really interesting story or they have a really interesting perspective or like we know them in our personal life and they don't have a public persona, but like they're just an interesting person and they're willing to share in a vulnerable, open way. Like those are the best guests. You know, I think we have a version of this issue on our show where we get a lot of tech execs, for example, and they want to sound smart and powerful, which I appreciate because I definitely have that intention too. I want to sound smart and powerful. Um, but often, you know, I think the best moments are when they open up and are a bit vulnerable. And I'm curious how you create the energy or the moment to get there because a guest shows up, you put on these bulky microphones, you have these big things in front of you, you have the lights in your face and you need to then over 30, 40 minutes, you know, they may not know you before how, and they may not be ready to share at that moment. What do you do or how do you judge the moment to be like, okay, I'm going to try and get them to a spot where they feel they're okay to share. That's a really good question. No one's ever asked us that. I think I grew up in in a household that was very non-judgmental. It was, it, I think a, what I've realized is now that I'm older, a lot of people grew up in households where their parents said, you're the doctor and you're the lawyer and you have to do this and you have to do that. I grew up in a household where it was like, whatever you're going to do, just be the best and, and give it your all. And looking back, that that's how I want to you know raise my daughter. It's like, I'm not telling her who she is. And I, for, I don't know Michael's opinion here, but for me, when, when a guest comes in, I try to cultivate that energy in the space. It's, it's a non-judgmental energy. And through that, what I've noticed is the audience that we've cultivated has been a non-judgmental audience. So when people come in, their, their guard isn't up because they don't feel like they're going to be judged. We, we, I, I, this may sound strange, but I think that people make mistakes in interviews where they go too much for the head, too much for the brain. You have to go for for the emotion. You have to you have to go for the heart. You have to make people feel heard and seen and comfortable. I think I don't want to say it's an energy, but there is a, there is something where you get someone in a small room, which is why we always insist on in person and make them feel like they're in a safe space, like they're comfortable, like they can share, and also sit with them ahead of time and say like, we're never going to put you in a position where you look bad or we make you feel bad. Like it's that. So they feel protected. And then when they, when you, when you're not just asking them the intellectual questions that they have to answer from the brain and you're actually going into emotion and, and talking about them as a person, they're able to open up a little bit more. I mean, nobody, we all know if you guys have been interviewed, when you go on any kind of modern publication of Forbes, you guys mentioned those earlier, it's, these questions where you're immediately on guard and you have to answer them in an intellectual way. There is no emotion involved. And we get used to that on these platforms. Lauren and I try to take the perspective. We tell every guest, Hey, imagine we're going to an intimate dinner for the first time and really getting to know each other. And there's nobody listening, but us. And we want to really know who you are. And I think that makes for an interview. That's also, you're able to go in other areas where maybe I, I'm, I'm having a tech executive on the show and we think we're going to talk about that, but then it turns into a whole thing about, you know, him as a person or his parenting style or what he's interested in as a hobby. Like, I don't think you can get there as an interviewer if you stick to such rigid questions that require so much mental thought. Also having fluidity with the interview, like, you know, Michael, like some, sometimes I don't even look at my notes. It's like this conversation's going down to a completely different hole that I didn't think it was going to go down to, but like having ability to be able to evolve and adjust and pivot within the interview 
And that's something that that I've learned. I, it's not something that's just natural. I think that it's is you have to. Not, Michael said, not be so rigid. Just kind of just let it. The conversation, the chips fall where they may. And when I start to ramble on and lose my train of thought and say something stupid, Lauren can jump in and save me right now, Lauren. I'm just <laughs> no, I think even like I'll give an example. Like we had a podcast guest come on and talk about her eating disorder. And Michael is obviously not going to have the tools in his toolbox to really support that interview. So that's going to be more of me. Or it's but, just going to make people uncomfortable if there's... Um, I mean, listen, we still live in, a, in this... I'm not going to be grilling a woman talking about an eating disorder as a man about her eating disorder. Right. right. Like, but we can have that conversation on the show because I can empathize and listen and learn and Lauren can kind of pick it up. So I, again, I think like to dumb it down a little, I think people in an interview capacity, make mistakes by being too rigid and going too much for the head and not enough for the heart. One thing, and I think, Lauren, I've seen you do this quite a few times on the show, is you, sometimes I think, I see you ask things and I go, wow, that's a bold question to ask because uh, in the sense of, uh, um, I think you create such a safe energy. So when you ask something, um, people are comfortable to go there. Right. Uh, and there have definitely been moments in our interviews where I've kind of like, I don't want to know whether I, I, I want to stay away. Like there's a space here, but I don't want to risk the next thing. And I, I don't want to push close. But Lauren, I just want to say you, you do you do this so often. And I often pause and I go, wow, I would not have I would not have the guts to actually go there. But then you do it and it works. <laughs> That's very, very nice. I, I, I think that when, if you're uncomfortable to ask a question that you want to ask, you can generalize it. Like you can say, you know, what are what is like a really big struggle in your life that you can pinpoint something that rocked you to your core. So you're asking a broad question, but you're also getting, getting the answer. I think too, if it's, if the conversations like this and it feels like you're at happy hour with them and, and it, 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 it sort of brings down their defenses. There's also, again, speaking, we talked about creating a safe space. We let our guests know from the beginning, like we are not out to hurt them or to get them. If they don't like it and they're uncomfortable, by all means, shut the question, right? It's not done to make them look bad or feel bad. And if they, you know, we also try to put ourselves in a situation where we're never going to ask people things that we wouldn't happily answer ourselves, right? And that intention is also out there. When we look at guests, the worst kind of guests for me are the ones who are, they're very keen on just promoting something like a book they wrote or something that they launched. And then you just cannot get them off the top. Yeah, it's great. They want to promote it. We want to help them sell yeah. more stuff or get more signups. We are in it, right? We want to help you, but we also want to maybe do other things and we want them to dance. No, but also like the way to, like I'm willing to bet that they would get a lot more traction and people interested in what they do if they were not so transactional about it and just like got to, like every question we'd ask, they'd be like, as I mentioned in my book and they would name the book and they would like then like talk about it. I'm like, I get it. I understand by like the fourth time you do that, it just sounds so disingenuous and very, very transactional. It just feels like you don't want, you don't care about the audience. You just want them to go click that Amazon button and buy that book. Like, just don't do that. That to me is like the worst stereotype of uh, guests who would come in because they think of it as a media tour, not so much to connect with the audience. You're so right. There are guests that do that. And my advice would be to lay the land in the beginning. So when they come on and they have their book, what I say is what does best on this podcast is telling your story. People want to know your story. They're going to seek you out if they like your story. Forget, I say this, forget the book, forget the product for a minute. Let's talk about it at the end and let's really get the meat of you in your story and then have this audience be so obsessed and seek you out and find you. And the reason I do that is because you have to put the audience first. And it's it's not them coming on your show and leveraging your incredible audience that you've built to sell their book. It's then coming on and telling the story to add value to the audience. And if that sells books, amazing. But it's your show. And I think just if you guys make a pact to put the audience first and you know the type that's going to sell the book, just tell them up front, hey, we want to hear all about your book, but let's get your story first. We also set the table. Like if I ever had extra time, like if I could ever go give a TED talk um, and it wouldn't be on things people would think, it would literally be on going to brands and agencies and and representatives and authors and founders that are trying to go and sell things online. And my advice would just be stop trying to sell things online and just tell your story. You're not giving the audience enough credit 
They are smart enough to go if they like you to seek you out, find your product. Everyone knows how to search online and look at Instagram. If they love you and they resonate with you and they resonate with your story, they will go and buy everything. You don't even have to tell them the link. They will seek you out. They will find you. We all know how to use this. That is so, so true. By the way, I have a, one of my favorite stories. And Michael, I think this is your comment about creating the uh, the space is uh, John Le Carre, who's a famous, you know, probably the best espionage writer of the last century, recently, sadly, passed away. He hated doing press and he had to do this press tour in France in the 90s. And he was booked on basically the French equivalent of The Tonight Show with a very, very popular host. And he hated it. He was like, I don't want to do this. I don't speak French really well. Uh, but he was contractually forced to go on. He goes on and he says, in the first five seconds of the show going on air, I knew why this guy was the best interviewer around. And it was not because he was funny. It was not because he was insightful. But in the first five seconds, he made me feel this is going to be okay. You're going to look good at the end of this, right? And and it was one of his best interviews of all time. And I think aspirationally, I think about like, how do we get that? And I don't know whether we, how often we succeed or fail, but I'm like, I'm trying to kind of psychically, you know, tell the guests and often over virtual mediums that we, you're going to be okay, right? You're going to look good. People think you're smart. You want to send this link around to your coworkers and your parents. We will make you look good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um... I also suspect for our cohort of people, like guests we get who are in tech, when they're really stiff or they just want to talk about something, they, the product that they launched and they just like are behind walls and it's so hard to like penetrate through. I always think if they were a bit more human, not just on the show, but in real life, like when they in their, in their professional environment, when they talk to their peers, when they talk to, you know, their teams, if they showed a bit more vulnerability, I'm willing to bet that they would be way more successful um, at just connecting with that co- with that audience. Like, you know, a lot of it is about storytelling and about trying to figure out, are these people like my people? Like, are they the same? Are we, can we connect and we bond? And people are trying to find similarities there. And so for a lot of these folks, when they're stiff, I often think about, hey, if you were good at like telling your story and being vulnerable and putting yourself out there, it's not just that you would have a really good podcast episode, you would also do really well in other aspects of your life, because a lot of this is about just who you really are and people willing to be able to see that. We all love this thing, this phone and these platforms and AI and all the stuff that's amazing and enhancing our lives. But what people are forgetting is human connection, right? Why do you why do people work in the companies they work in? Why do they stay there? It's because of the connection. It's because it's, you know, I tell people all the time at Dear Media, culture comes first. And I don't just mean that like, you know, rah, rah, culture comes first. I mean, you have to love the environment you're in. You have to love working with the people. You have to be interested. You have to, you have to feel a human connection because if all you need is to sit behind a screen or to sit behind a mic and talk and lose that, that's what people are losing. I think it's making it very difficult for people to find success even when we have all these tools at our disposal is because they're they're focused too much on all the stuff and not enough on the human connection. Well, look at Elon Musk. Elon Musk is so fucking smart. But there's a lot of people that are so fucking smart. Why is Elon Musk so successful? It's because he shows personality. He's funny. He's self-deprecating. He's honest. I saw on Twitter the other day, he goes, I lost weight from lifting weights or something. And then the next line says, Anozempic. He's he's honest. He's real. He's vulnerable. He lets you in behind the scenes. When he showed us that picture of Twitter, what it looked like when he first got it, that was, that was, he's, it's, it's very smart with how he brings you in. It's almost like he has his own little community. The reason he's so successful is not only because he's a genius. And also for founders out there, and listen, again, I already mentioned I wasn't the greatest student and I don't have all the credentials. And really there's nothing that, there's no certification or qualification for me to be doing anything I'm doing. But I think people enjoy working with me. And I think people enjoy working with us. And I think it's because we create an environment where we where we acknowledge the people and we make them feel like they're heard and they make them feel that like we have their interest as humans before the product or the service or the, you know what I mean? But also we don't always get it right. <laughs> we don't always get it right. <laughs> I'm so happy uh, you like Elon and what he did. I was actually there that day. There's a lot of people who don't like Elon. So it's kind of great to uh, 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 to actually you know find a fellow person who actually likes Elon. I think because I do think his his authenticity is a big part of why he's successful. I'll give I'll name names on the counter side. I actually think uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who's gotten very good about this now, um, but for years, I think what did people think of him? They thought he was robotic. 
uh, you know, didn't have emotions. I think they let the Aaron Sarkin movie color perceptions of him. The Mark I know, I don't mean to sound as name drop here, but the Mark I know is hilarious, uh, very human, a great friend to a lot of his close friends. But I think he never gave himself the permission for many, many years to be that version of himself out there. And so when Facebook got into trouble for privacy or for something else, they didn't trust a human being because they never saw that version of Mark who was hilarious and would do practical jokes and all of that. And I think in recent years, he's let himself be human. He talks about his family and he's more him. And I think you know, that's kind of like helped him so much. Um, and I, I, I tell this to founders all the time, like we live in a world where people don't trust technology, right? Everyone's afraid of AI. Everyone's afraid of privacy. You pick your thing, people are afraid of you. And if you try and play act a famous CEO, it's not going to work. But if people get to know you, right, uh, if they know what you like, maybe you're into UFC, maybe, you know, you have a, 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 a sort of a weird childhood story. If they feel like they know you, then they're going to trust you and they trust your values when you before you have a chance to explain it to them. So I think about the Mark versus Elon contrast quite a bit here. We had Gary Vee on the show, right? And one of the things Gary talked about was how you have to create content that is native to the platform and Gary is probably the best I've ever seen at doing that. Now, you're obviously huge on Instagram, you have a Facebook group, uh, you have the podcast, but how do you think of the, the Joji blog, blog, obviously, but how do you think about LinkedIn? How do you think, I, I think we have people who are doing Substack, I guess one, how do you think about different platforms and how to create content for that? You have limited time. How do you even think of content creation as a process? And then maybe for specific platforms, what do you find working and not working? really leaning into what you're good at is really important. I would rather lean in and triple down on what I'm good at than be everywhere all the time. And listen, some people want to be everywhere all the time and they're good at everything all the time. I think presence, I think absence is just important as presence. Number one, I think that there is such thing to oversaturate yourself and be in someone's face all the time. It starts to get repetitive and boring and I know what to expect. I really value absence. So that's number one. Number two is like I said, the platform and the platform that I personally like the best that I think is most intimate with the audience is podcasting. And so I really triple down on that. And I've taken that very, very seriously. And then the third thing is I think that if you do want to do a product, it's very important that you're content marketing for the product before you launch it, not in a selly way, but in a way that's bringing the audience along and asking them questions, what color, what fabric, what this. So when the product does launch, they feel invested in it and it makes sense. So I think those are sort of the three pillars that I look at when it comes to creating content. When you think about growth, uh, specific to each of the platforms, but also broadly, like, you know, you think about Dear Media, you look about, think about Skinny Confidential. How do you, do you set milestones? Do you be like in a year, I need to be here? Like, how do you figure out how far you've come, like progress from say a few months to now? And how do you think about future goals, vision, that kind of thing? I do 24 minute strategy session with myself every single morning. I sit there and I meditate on my future and I've been doing it since I got pregnant with town. So for two years, every single morning, I rarely miss a day. And I just sit there in silence. Uh, it's not silence. It's a Joe Dispenza meditation, but I sit there with just myself with my headphones on and I meditate, but I meditate on my future. And a lot of my friends who are, you know, some incredible businessmen will say, I can't meditate. I can't do that. And I said, but flip it and look at it, that it's a strategy session with yourself every single day. And I really think that everything that I have visualized and thought about that it starts with that morning meditation. I do set, I do set goals Michael and I, you know, are both in our notes app with our three-year plan, with our 10-year plan. We're very thoughtful and we also communicate a lot. We'll take walks and go over it. Um, but I think it's very important to, to have that in front of you all the time and to also be thinking about it and meditating on it and then obviously taking massive action and execution. I also think people don't you know, this is going to sound woo woo, but what you speak into existence, you know, if you believe in manifestation, I think becomes true. And I think going back to what we were discussing earlier about the benefits of working with your wife is when you work with a bunch of different business partners or friends, or, you know, whether you're working for yourself, you don't have as much intimate time to discuss 
what do you want your life to look like in a year? What do you want it to look like in two years, 10 years, five years? We talk so much. We take walks almost every single day together. I love it. This is one of my favorite interviews we've ever had. You guys are really <laughs> oh, impressive interviewers. Oh, man. Thank uh, you. Oh, my God. We thank are, you. We are very new to this. Like, you know, we, we started it on Clubhouse, which is live social audio. So he would go to his bed, like to our bedroom and I'd be in the living room so that it, it's, you know, we don't have feedback loop. And so we would just talk into our phone. There's no video, nothing. So you don't have to do like hair, makeup, whatever. And you just show up. Uh, and so that's how we did. We did shows daily. You know, this is thick of the pandemic. We just... Uh, we're meeting people, we're stuck in our homes and we were like, all right, we're just going to do virtual dinner parties and just get people. Of course, our version of virtual dinner parties was to talk about promotions and performance reviews at work and how do you build products? And then we'd got like really successful founders and that's kind of why we got all these like tech people on and that just slowly started scaling. And then at some point we started getting you know, these people in like music and Hollywood yeah. and sports. And we realized that there was this like common thread across all these people, like the best people in their fields, all really were excited to tell their story. And their story was almost always about like, I started really young. I really knew I wanted to go do this. I, you know, there was just this like, uh, I just figured out a way. I just gritted out. I just persevered. I made it happen. So every story had this like common thread. And for us, that was kind of cool and interesting. Yeah. So I think by now we've done what, like 200 plus yeah, episodes. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's kind of cool. Wow, wow you guys. I want to get back to something I think uh, uh, Michael said, which is, you know, we always want to work on something together. Yeah. And this is just opened up such a new dimension in our relationship yeah. uh, because it's so you know, it's so fun. And honestly, at the end of this, I tell creators, podcasters, whatever you're creating, like, unless you have fun doing it, you will burn out. 100%. It kind of opened up this whole new thing. It's our baby. And, you know, we we think about it all the time. We talk about it all the time. You know, like I said, it's, it's a very rewarding process if you can navigate all of the stressors that come with working together. And I think people, like maybe this is a common misconception. Lauren and I don't get to work together on everything. She has a separate company with a separate team and a separate payroll and separate pe a whole separate bank, all that stuff. And dear me, you know, day to day, she's not involved. She's completely separate out of it. I have a separate team. This is the thing where we can come together and say, okay, this is our thing together. Um, but it's, you know, it's created such an interesting and fulfilling lane where we get to meet people at the same time. And it's, it's not now coming home after a long day of work and be like, what did you do today? It's like, we're doing it together. Last question. And uh, I'd say this is one of our favorite conversations ever. Let us say you're looking back on this time, several decades in the future, many, many, many more decades in the future. You're all old or you know, your brains have been uploaded into some AI singularity and you're looking back on these, this last couple of, this decade, the previous decade, what would make you happy? What would make you go, we did something right. We did something well. Autonomy, <laughs> being, being able to wake up and pick what we get to create every day on our own terms. Um, being able to have space, clarity, but also we still want to be working and using our brain and reading and, and, and podcasting. So I think like we, we talk about like, again, going back to intention, I say this all the time on the show. We are learning at the same exact time as the audience, maybe minus like the upload time, right? Like the people we're having on the conversations we're having, we're learning that and we're enhancing our lives. And our hope is that other people are enhancing their lives as well. If we can make a career out of it and have success and all of that, like I, I feel like that's a byproduct of providing outsized value to people. And, and it comes back around. I mean, we've got to meet so many people doing this that I know we would have never had the chance to meet if we didn't do this. Like there's no way that you guys reach out or that we get to sit down with some of the people if we didn't have this platform. And I think it's, it's, it's enhanced our lives so much, but I also want this to be a, I, I really want Lauren and I to be an example of like, Hey, you don't have to necessarily always have the credentials and a flimsy idea could become a very big thing. And even if it doesn't fit a very specific box, there's a real opportunity to do something different. And Hey, you don't have to follow the same path or stick to the status quo. Like if, if we can do that for people, and look back, um, and especially not even just look back for, you know, everyone else, but our children and they can look back and be like, wow, look what our parents did. And that was really unique and different and strange. And like, why would they ever do that? And it started in such an organic way. Like, I think that it's, it's inspiring. And I see other, I, I, I think we're living in such an interesting time where you get all of these opportunities that could never, I mean, some of these things we see now just could not happen 30 years ago. It'd be impossible. And so I, I think like there is an altruistic, 
you know, version of this. And there's also a, a, you know, selfish version of this. But at the same time, it's like the intention is the same as it was in the beginning. It was like provide outsized value and the rest will take care of itself. I love the kids part. Someday we think about like someday, I don't know, kids will be like, yeah, we hope that they would find this interesting. That what are their parents were doing in their thirties, and maybe I they'll think find they'll this. go through a phase of being. You know, you guys are so cringe. No, and then they, I like, think they'll, they'll be proud of you it. guys. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. We'll check back on that in a couple of decades, Lauren, and we'll get back to that. But I just want to say, um, you know, you, you probably two of our favorite guests, and I, you know, I want everyone to just absolutely check out your podcast because I think you folks create something so authentic. You're very much you. Thank you for coming on the show. This is amazing. Thank you. 